Coming on, there we go. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Psalm 22 as we continue our study in the Psalms. Um, You've got some notes also inside the worship folder, so I invite you to take those out as well. At the beginning of World War II, uh, C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Problem of Pain, which was really a theology of suffering. It answered a lot of questions that people had, especially at the beginning of the war years in England. C.S. Lewis uh, had never married. He was 58 years old um, when he wrote that. And in 1956, there was an American woman, Joy Davidman, who won Lewis's heart, and they were married. Uh, She had been diagnosed with cancer before they were married and uh, was in remission. But two years into their marriage, the cancer returned and Joy passed away. Uh, Lewis was heartbroken, as you can imagine. Someone reminded him of the book that he wrote on the theology of suffering. And and he said, you know, it's not really helpful. What I wrote doesn't minister to my heart. And so Lewis wrote another book called A Grief Observed. And in this second book, actually, it's a movie. uh, Maybe you've seen a movie called Shadowlands which stars Anthony Hopkins as C.S. Lewis. And it's a good movie. It talks about this this struggle of having lost his wife. Um, But in the second book, A Grief Observed, Lewis says a lot of things that sound like David in Psalm 22, talking about suffering that he was going through. Uh, Psalm 22, and you have this on your outline, is the clearest picture we have of Jesus death and resurrection in the Old Testament. It is a prophetic psalm. It is a psalm of affliction. It was the great preacher Charles Spurgeon who called this psalm the psalm of the cross, which is where we get the title for today's uh, message. Jesus himself connected his death and resurrection to this psalm. In Matthew 27, Jesus prayed the first words of this psalm, on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we need to say it here at this point that Jesus himself was so filled with the word of God that it gave him the ability to interpret and to face every challenge he went through in his life. Even the cross, which was such an incredible uh, a time of suffering in his life. It gives us some understanding of, of the suffering that, that Jesus endured, but, but he was able to draw on the word of God that he had hidden in his heart. And what a challenge for us to be able to do the same thing, to, to memorize God's word, to meditate on his word, to allow it to be in our lives so that we can draw on it in times of suffering to be able to interpret and, and to face every challenge that comes our way. So you might ask where the resurrection is in this psalm. We see the crucifixion in verse one. Where's the resurrection at? Well, look at the very last phrase, the last verse, verse um, 31. Uh, Commentators aren't sure about this, but many of them point to Jesus' last words on the cross in John 19 when he says, it is finished, as being based on verse 31. It says, he has done it. And the point of that is that This psalm is divided into two parts. Verses 1 to 21 are really a a cry for help. 
And then verses 22 to 31 are a song of praise. And so the point of that is that, that Jesus promises in the second half, that he's saying basically it's as good as done for you. We can rejoice in that. And so again, on your outline, the turning point of the chapter is verse 21, where it says literally at the end of the verse, you have rescued me or answered me. Uh, Young's literal translation of verse 21 says, save me from the mouth of a lion and from the horns of the high places. And then there's a, a period in this literal translation. And then it says, you have answered me. And in Hebrew, you have answered me as one word, anah. God didn't abandon Jesus in the grave. There was a, there's this turning point in verse 21. And, and everything God has promised is, has happened. His suffering would save the world and the nations would turn to him. And so Psalm 22 is also a prophetic psalm. We know David is the human author of this psalm, but, but this is what's so fascinating to me. Nothing in this psalm points to anything in the life of David. There's nothing we read about David's agony or victory that would explain what he wrote in Psalm 22. Uh, David is writing as a prophet. He's describing Jesus' suffering on the cross and the victory that followed. And again, on your outline, there, there's a list there of some of the fulfillment of this chapter in the New Testament about the cross. And you can look over those seven different fulfillments and you can see that, uh, it, it's, look at the last ones, even the last few, his hands and feet were pierced, people staring at him, gambling for his garments. That does not describe David anywhere. And so he's speaking it about Jesus. And Psalm 22 is also emotional. We know that Jesus' last words of the gospel were written by the prophet uh, David. But here, through David, we get an insight not only on what Jesus said, but what he was thinking and feeling as a human. He, he, he felt abandoned. He, he felt overwhelmed. And so as we read this psalm, it's, it's almost like we're standing on, on holy ground. If you look through the, the church, if you look through church history, um, you find hundreds of examples like C.S. Lewis of godly people who felt at one point or another in a, in a difficult time in their lives abandoned by God. Some of you may be thinking, well, you know, I, I don't really identify with that, but others of you might say, you know what, I am going through a time of pain right now. I, I feel afflicted. I feel like God hasn't answered my prayers. Maybe you've got pain in your life on one level or another, maybe physically. Maybe it's in a relationship. Maybe it's, it's emotionally. Maybe it's financially. And you look and or maybe you're asking and, and you're saying, you know what, I'm, I'm fairly new to Christianity and I want to know how Christians, looking at Jesus, how we should handle suffering, how Christians handle suffering. So let's work our way through these verses. We're gonna read them as we work through them, but the first thing we see, number one on your outline, is that Jesus calls out to God for help. Sometimes that's the most spiritual prayer that we can pray, Lord, help me, help. Jesus is 100% God and he's 100% man. And as a human being here on the cross, we see Jesus stretched to his limits. 
And we can identify with his sufferings. These are the thoughts and the feelings of someone who is a human, like us. 100% human, 100% divine. So in looking at this, at, God, at Jesus crying out to God for help, there are two parts of it. First of all, he felt abandoned by God, but then also he's mocked by man. So let's start with verses one and two. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, and I find no rest. Jesus felt that God had abandoned him, but, but still he holds on to the Father. And there's two questions in one statement in these first, uh, first two verses. And Jesus is calling out to God by faith, even though he doesn't sense God with him, even though he's dying on the cross. Have you ever felt like God abandoned you? Have you ever felt that? I've had people with cancer or something serious come up to me and, and say something like, I must have done something really bad to deserve this. And so we wrongly keep it inside of us. It's what one psychologist calls self-contempt. And, and he said, in other words, it's when we, the self-contempt is when we fail to trust God and we fail to believe that God and others can handle our anger and our pain. And so we turn it inwards. And we show up maybe on a Sunday morning and no one knows the pain that we're in and we're, because we're dealing with it on our own. And so on our own, we've contained it. On our own, we've stuffed it down. On our own, we've compartmentalized it. And we don't believe God wants to hear it. We know God's holy. We know God knows everything anyway. So why do we have to speak about it and give it to him? We think wrongly we don't have to. And if that describes you I, I, as your pastor, as someone who loves you, I would say, please talk to God and, 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 and verbalize what you're feeling, the pain you're feeling. Verbalize it to other people. That's why we encourage small groups and, and, and small Bible studies so you can share your pain with those people so they can help carry you through those hard times. Come and talk with me about it. Think about Jesus. He enjoyed perfect unity with his Father for all eternity. He says in John 10, 30, I and the Father are one. He's one with the Father. And he had never known even a shadow of spiritual distance between him and his father. And now he calls out and there seems to be no answer. So why? Why did he go through this? Well, you know, I, I need to go back to one of my favorite Bible verses, 2 Corinthians 5.21. And it's my favorite because outside of John 3.16, it's such a, a concise look at the gospel of what happens in, in our lives with, when the gospel invades our lives. And you have it on in another version, another translation on, on your outline from the Amplified Bible. It says this, he made Christ who knew no sin to, do, to judiciously be sin on our behalf. So that in him we would become the righteousness of God. That is, we would be made acceptable to him and placed in a right relationship with him by his gracious, loving kindness. 
And so God looked at Jesus and he saw all of your sin. And not just yours alone, but the sin of the whole world on him on the cross. And that's what allows God to look at us and see the righteousness of Christ. Do we deserve it? Absolutely not. That's why it's called the grace of God. And so Jesus felt abandoned, but there was a purpose in it. And I love that verse, it's so rich. And, and you've got this on your outline. May, we may feel like God has turned his back on us. Like our prayers are bouncing off the ceiling. But if we belong to Christ, we have his promise in Matthew 28, 20. I am with you always. It's on the outline. I'm with you always. And there's so many other promises about that. And in the same way that Jesus did, and this is also on your outline, we can strengthen our faith by remembering God's faithfulness. God is faithful. He's faithful to you. Look at verses three to five. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In, our, in you, our ancestors put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. To you, they cried out and were saved. In you, they trusted and were not put to shame. And the word trusted there in those three verses is repeated three times. It was in Jesus' darkest hours that he strengthened in, in his heart by remembering who God is and that God has been faithful. You could start with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the Old Testament. You continue in the New Testament with Paul and, and Peter and James and John and look at God's faithfulness to them. You know, if, if, if we gave a microphone to everyone here this morning and passed it around and started talking about God's faithfulness, it wouldn't get too far before you'd say, hey, I want that microphone back. I thought of another way God's been faithful to me. And we would be here for probably days and weeks on end just talking about God's faithfulness to us, to our children. It doesn't take Kathy and me long to think of how God's been so faithful to us over the years and faithful to our children and faithful to, think of our missionaries, think of Brandon up here talking a little bit ago about God's faithfulness to them, to their family. We see it over and over again in the lives of our missionaries. God is faithful. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, it says in Lamentations. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And then still in the, this first point, the, the second part is Jesus' anguish, was the, the, to his anguish was the mocking that he went through because God's enemies were not silent. Look at verses seven and eight. All who see me mock me. And they make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him. For he delights in him. And this is exactly what happened on the, to Jesus on the cross. In Matthew 27, those who passed by, it says, hurled insults at him. And how did Jesus respond? He felt it. Look at verse 6. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. Have you been insulted because you're a Christian? 
Jesus gives us this great promise in Matthew 5 that, that God blesses you when people mock and persecute you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil things against you because you are my followers. Be happy about it. Be very glad for a great reward awaits you in heaven. And remember, the ancient prophets were persecuted in the same way. Jesus knew this. He was reminded about this as well. And so we can be encouraged because Jesus felt this so deeply. And we'll feel it deeply, but, but again, we know that, even if we might not feel it, we know that God is there. And then look at Psalm 22, verse nine. In that verse, it says, you, yet you brought me out of the womb and you made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. And so the next thing you have on your outline, Jesus strengthened himself again with his knowledge of God. We grow as we, as we, in our faith as we learn about God. Jesus knew that God cared for him. He knew that, that since he was born, God had cared for him. And so after all the sorrow, Jesus has this request uh, in verses 11 to 18, and, and it's on, the, on your outline, through the Holy Spirit, David describes the torture of Jesus' sacrifice that he went through because of his love for you. His love for you. He could have prayed for an escape. He could have prayed for 10,000 angels times 10,000 to come down and, and, and get him off the cross, but he doesn't. What does he pray? Verse 11, do not be far from me. And on the cross, Jesus treasured God's presence more than anything. Verse 12, of Psalm 22, many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me, roaring lions that tear their prey open, their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. One commentator, thinking of, of those verses, wrote this. It's on your outline. Think of this. The one who holds all things together had every joint dislocated. The one who gives living water was dried up like a broken clay pot. And this is God's doing. Speaking in the spirit, David says, you lay me in the dust of death. And his God has done this to him. And Isaiah says it was the will of the Lord to crush him. When you're going through a hard time, it doesn't take God by surprise. He knows what you're going through. You verbalize it. You tell him what you're going through. He wants to hear it. That's the reason we can even pray is in these next verses. Look at verse 16. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircle me. And the reason we can pray and talk with God is they pierce my hands and my feet. His hands and his feet were pierced so, so that we can have access to God. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. You know, artists, when they paint a picture of Jesus on the cross, generally will have some kind of uh, a loincloth over him. He was naked on the cross. That's the reality of it, of his suffering. And people laughed and stared and gloated 
when they saw Jesus on the cross. And what's our response? What's our response to such an amazing love? Isaac Watts, who gave us so many beautiful hymns, gave us this one too. Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? Was it for crimes that I had done that he groaned upon the tree? Amazing pity, grace unknown, and love beyond degree. But drops of grief can ne'er repay the debt of love I owe. Here, Lord, I give myself away. Tis all that I can do. And so the first 21 verses of Psalm 22 have Jesus cry for help. And the next verses we have, this is number two on your outline, Jesus singing praises. We see in these verses the joy that Jesus had, that it spreads throughout the earth. And you know what? When you read this psalm, this is really a missionary psalm. Jesus says that God answered him and rescued him. And so this second half describes Jesus' ministry after the resurrection. Jesus says that that God answered him and rescues him. In verses 22 to 24, Jesus reveals the Father to us. So look at verse 22. This is, again, post-resurrection. I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. If we trust in him, if we belong to him, we are his people. Verse 22. Every Christian is Jesus' brother or sister. The writer to the Hebrews applies the words of Psalm 22, and he says this, it's on your outline, and he quotes Psalm 22, verse 22. God for whom and through whom everything was made chose to bring many children into glory. That's talking about us as believers. And it was only right that he should make Jesus, through his suffering, a perfect leader, fit to bring them into their salvation. So now Jesus and the ones he makes holy have the same father. God is our father. That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them his brothers and sisters. For he said to God, now quoting Psalm 22, I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. I will praise praise you among your assembled people. So where is Jesus right now in this psalm, in Psalm 22, verse 22, in this section? He's among his brothers and sisters. He's in the church. He's describing us. God has adopted all believers as his children. And that means we are Jesus' brothers and sisters. And what is Jesus doing here? He is declaring God's praise. Look at verse 24. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. God's listened to Jesus. You know, we've said it many times, the best commentary on the word of God is the word of God. And so verse 24 of Psalm 22 needs to be interpreted by reading Hebrews 5. So Hebrews 5 on your outline says this, while Jesus was here on earth, he offered prayers and pleadings with a loud cry and tears to the one who could rescue him from death. Verse 24. 
and God heard his prayers because of his deep reverence for God. And what this means for us in light of the cross is that God has accepted the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf, on your behalf. There is therefore now no condemnation, Paul writes, to those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus never ceased to be God while he was on earth. And yet he went through this authentic agony for you and for me. Mark tells us in Mark 14, quoting Jesus, that he says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. So now let's keep reading in verse 23 of of Psalm 22. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. There's praise to God in Israel. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. There it is. Wow. Verse 25, we'll keep going. From from you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. This is the unending favor of God on Jesus and on us who belong to him. And in these next verses, we will, he will praise him among the Gentiles. And here we get to the mission part of it. Jesus will announce God's name to the, to the nations so that they turn to God. Look at verse 27. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations will bow down before him. So if we've trusted Jesus, we're in this number. He's talking about us here. This is Jesus thinking of you and me. And this is what an amazing thought. And and it reminds us of God's love for us. Verse 28, for dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him those who cannot keep themselves alive. Because of the suffering of Jesus, the nations will turn so that in heaven, every tongue and tribe and nation will be represented. And the only response to this for us on your outline is that we, that we can have is to be committed to local and world outreach. And that's why we're committed to Brandon and Rachel. That's why we're committed to our missionaries. That's why we commit such a big chunk of our budget, around 20%, to missions. And at the same time, we need to have an urgency to share Jesus with the people around us. And so I, 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 I implore you to, to, as you pray, I hope part of your prayer list is your, your 10 people in your life that don't know Jesus that you're praying for, and that you're looking for opportunities to invite them to Jesus. You're looking for opportunities to go and talk to them yourself, to invite them to church. We participate, as we participate with Jesus in building his kingdom, we experience that same joy. And then verse 30 and 31, posterity will serve him, future generations will be told about the Lord, they will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn that God has done this. It's our responsibility to tell the next generation and that the purpose for Jesus' death, and we pray for those purposes to be fulfilled. 
So what is the task before us? I read this this week and it, it was kind of shocking that 20, uh, almost a quarter of the world's population, 26% actually, of today's world are made up of people 15 years old and younger. Think about that. And 80% of those people are among unreached people language groups, which is again why we send <clears throat> our missionaries out to reach those people. And so Psalm 22 should motivate us to be on our toes looking for opportunities to share Jesus with our friends. Maybe God's calling you to consider missions. And verse 31 ends with, he has done this. It is finished. So I mentioned C.S. Lewis earlier. And during Lewis's wife's uh, illness, a friend tried to encourage him and, and said, uh, Lewis, I know how hard you've been praying and I know God will answer your prayers. And Lewis said, you know, that's not why I'm praying. That's not why I pray. I pray because I can't help myself. I pray because I'm helpless. I pray because the need flows out of me all the time. Waking and sleeping. What he's saying is to communicate with God. I need to communicate with him. That's a prayer of faith. Lord, you made me. Now care for me. I feel helpless. I need help, Lord. Rescue me. And how do we get there? You know, when you're going through a time that's really difficult for you, don't ignore it. Don't stuff it. Don't compartmentalize it. Lean into it. Lean into God. Lean into other believers who can support you and pray for you when you go through times of darkness or pain. You know, we actually see this in so many Psalms. There's a time of questioning God and expressing grief, but then there's a turn. I will trust you and praise you, even though I'm suffering. And so we get to a place of praise and trust by going there with God and giving him what's going on in our life in a brutally honest way. That's what he wants to hear from us. It's like, and this is on, on your outline, it's like there's this furnace of transformation that we're in and we go through and cha it changes us. And those who've been through this know exactly what I'm talking about. You know, we say in the membership class that one of our goals for this church is to be a church where it's a place where we can laugh together and even cry together. And we want to be a community that's able to support one another during these times. And when we do that, when we're not afraid ourselves to go into a, a place that's pretty dark and do that with other people and point them to Jesus and bear their burdens with them, we will find a God who is much bigger than we've ever imagined. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for showing us through this psalm who Jesus is. And we praise you and we worship you for delivering Jesus from death through the resurrection. Thank you that through Jesus being delivered that you've delivered us into your eternal family. You deliver us from evil. Thank you for what Jesus did for us on the cross. Lord, will you help us now to apply what we've heard this morning to our lives as we've as we walk through this next week. Lord, if there's someone here who doesn't know you, 
that you would draw them to yourself, that they would respond right now in faith. In Jesus' name we pray. This is from Psalm 112. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Blessed, fortunate, prosperous, and favored by God is the one who fears the Lord with awe-inspired reverence and worships him with obedience, who delights greatly in his commandments. Amen.